Welcome to the next class. I'm Rob Burtz, your host, and as always, joined by my co-host, Tom Burnford. Tom, good to see you. Good to see you, Rob. Great to be on again. Yes. How have you been? Been very well, thank you. Been very well and uh, enjoying reading some of the uh, stuff by our guest today. Can't wait for this conversation. Yeah, Rick is a prolific writer. And um, for the past 20 years, Rick has, has been the Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Prior to this, Rick was an Assistant Professor and Director of Education Policy at the University of Virginia. Furthermore, Rick is a father, scholar. I like that he put that first, father then scholar, author, and speaker who focuses on improving K-12 and higher education. He blogs at Education Week as a contributor at Forbes and The Hill, writes regularly for Education Next and National Review. For the best summation of his thinking, check out letters to a young ed reformer. Uh, and I recall uh, hosting Rick at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management summer, I think it was 2009, where Rick, you discussed your book, Cage-Busting Leadership, to a number of aspiring school leaders, uh, which is part of our curriculum. And we met a few years before that when I was at Creestray, and you were a big supporter of ours and, and wrote some great pieces on Creestray. And I noticed you just recently, in November, wrote again about Creestray. So, Rick Hess, welcome to the next class. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. No, good to see you again. Oh, great. And um, Rick, just to, just to kick us off here, um, I'm curious about where your passion for education reform came from. And clearly, you have a lot of passion. I, I wonder if you can point out or point to some experience or encounter that was transformative for you in your work that just led you to uh, to your career and to the, the great contributions you make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I'm an odd duck uh, in our space. Well, I think a lot of people, I, I don't, I'm not really concerned with ed reform. I'm concerned with like good schools and good classrooms. Right. Because yep. You know, I think a lot of people who I like and respect in education are doing it because they they think education is a good way to make a better world. Um, and I'm a much more selfish guy. Um, I, I just hated school when I as a young person. Um, I uh, finally got skipped out of second grade because I got beat up so much that they figured something must be going on. And I, I just, you know, I thought high school was death. Um, and then all of a sudden I got to college and I discovered that like all you had to do was like read stuff. And I turned out, I'd always liked reading. Remember I missed like three weeks of sophomore year when I just read the Vonnegut Uber. I had like never. And so for me, um, the passion is less about that. I'm, I have some vision of the role schools should play to fix the world. And more that I just think, I think learning, I think schooling is just such a fundamentally human project. It is so core to our beings. Um, you know, when I look at my own little guys, uh, they love, you know, I mean, the act of learning to do something, whether it's throw a football or ride a bike yep. or, uh, you know, or, or color a picture is just such so hardwired into us. And the love of like sharing what we know with the children in our lives as teachers or parents or aunts and uncles is the fact that we have turned this into this bureaucratic slog that we have made going to school drudgery that so many children dread just seems to me the most toxic, inexcusable, poisonous development. And so my passion is just like, I'm like, look, let's just make education and learning and schooling as human and, and rewarding and as natural as they should be. Yeah. Wow. That's a great, great way to look at it. Um, you know, once in a while, I uh, my children suffer from Monday morning itis, which is the disease of not wanting to go to school on Monday morning. Um, so, and I've, I'm I'm with you there. We have to make a way that to to bring out the natural desire to learn. And uh, yeah, that's great. So, 
On that note, Rick, you uh, you recently wrote a piece uh, for the National Affairs entitled Education After the Pandemic. So with that preamble about your passion for this, how you got into it, let's just jump right into it. What, what is education going to look like after this pandemic? Um, it's a great question. <laughs> I don't think any of us really know. Um, you know, I think the optimistic scenario is that this has been a real gut check. Uh, as my mm-hmm. colleague and our friend Robert Pondicio has written several times now, um, I think it's caused a lot of reevaluations of the relationship between parents and communities and schools. And this could be hugely fruitful. It's a chance to ask different questions, to ask where kind of routines aren't well suited to the needs of kids and families. Um, the, the, the pessimistic scenario is it will go back to the things that the system knows how to do, that unions will drag their heels on uncomfortable change, that district bureaucrats are busy spending money on the things that they know how to spend money on, uh, that parents are just so deathly concerned, that parents are just so deathly concerned with giving their kids a sense of routine and connection and exposure to peers who aren't wearing masks, uh, hopefully by next fall, uh, that we're just going to kind of settle back into the things that haven't been working that well for too many kids and too many families. My hope is that we will do the first. And so this piece, this national affairs piece, was kind of premised on that uh, for folks who are actually interested in that conversation and want to think about what does it mean to seize on these opportunities. Uh, I was trying to talk about what strike me as a couple of uh, the big, um, massively underexploited possibilities for rethinking uh, how schools do their work. Yeah, and I, I I love that article too, and found it challenging. But Rick, one piece you you mentioned in that is that you know school staffing grew um, between 1950 and 2015. School school staffing grew at almost four times the rate of student enrollment. Right. Um, and, you know, with teaching staff growing twice as fast as enrollment and now non-teaching staff seven times as fast. This seems crazy, right? It's crazy, but we've lived it. I know those are the stats in, in Catholic education too. And so clearly this staffing model is not sustainable. And so can you talk to us? I mean, do you have ideas for ways that schools can re-engineer themselves or change their staffing and the way they deliver education? Yeah, you know, I mean, and, and you know, the funny part is, the, the easy part is usually to think about and write these things. The hard part is always <laughs> to actually do them. Yeah. And so uh, uh, that's true. Yeah. One of the great things about my life is I always get to do the easy part. I hang out, you know, in a DC office building and think thoughts and then say, well, somebody else should make this happen. So with that as kind of, <laughs> you know, an acknowledgement of life's harsh realities, um, Look, what happened, I mean, we basically, by putting schooling on cruise control in public and private education over the past half century, we made a choice, right? It's rush, right? You you choose not to make a choice, you make a choice. We could have chosen to focus on quality and pay teachers much better. If we had kept student-teacher ratios stable, say, since the early 70s, instead of dramatically expanding staff... Average teacher pay today would be about $120,000 before benefits. 
By the time you factor in benefits, wow, um, yeah, average teacher will be making 140 grand plus average. Starting yeah. pay in most of the U.S. would be like ninety thousand dollars for first year teachers. Wait, wait, Rick, explain that again. Well, so what happened was, say, back in say 1972, so 50 years mm-hmm. ago, um, we had an average uh, student teacher ratio of about 26 to one. Okay. Uh, today we have a student teacher ratio of 13 to one. Um, and if and if I recall, I've done a lot of thinking about this, and and I have not found research that has indicated that a lower student-teacher ratio in the numbers you're describing actually improves student learning. No, and in fact, student-teacher ratio is not even class size. So the crazy thing is class size hasn't actually dropped that much because what happened is we now have teacher contracts which give teachers less contact time where we have lots more power professionals and administrative staff. So it's not that class size would be twice as big. Class size would be somewhat bigger, but... You know, Rob, you're exactly right. The research on this, say, out of the famed Tennessee Star experiment, um, you know, found only that there were some benefits for some children of dramatic decreases in class size in grades K to two. It's the lower grades, especially not at high school. When California tried to do this and tried to do it across the board, not only was there no evidence of benefit, but it turns out that when you add a lot of teachers, it means you have to go further down the bench in terms of who you hire. And it means you've wow. got to spread your training more widely. So when you look at a bunch of the nations that we usually talk about as leaders, say in math instruction, we often talk about South Korea or yeah. Japan. Well, these are nations that frequently have class sizes that any American parent would choke at. 35 or 40 kids in an eighth grade classroom, yet they dramatically outperform us. I'm not calling for 35 kid class sizes. I'm just saying that when we look back, we chose to put all of this extra investment into adding lots of bodies, making it harder to recruit carefully, making it harder to train well, and making it much harder to pay everybody well. So if we had instead put those dollars into more pay for the professionals in our schools, Average pay today nationally would be 120,000 plus with benefits. The package would be 140 to 150,000 on average in average starting pay across the country. If you take like the NEA's data, the National Education Association's data and simply make the adjustments, it would be something like 85 or $90,000 starting pay for a first year teacher. Wow. Yeah. And you wow. and just thinking about the teacher shortages, the, um, some of the data you had in your article about uh, the, the teachers quitting and retiring, and you wonder how much of that is because they just don't feel valued. And this is hard work right now. It's it's exhausting work. Um, you know, we know teachers get trained poorly. Um, we often talk about teaching versus other professions. Sometimes folks forget, you know, there's like 140 law schools in the U.S. Uh, there's, I forget the exact number, less than 100 medical schools, if I, if I remember the data right. Um, you know, there's over a thousand teacher preparation programs. So what happens is quality control just becomes brutal. There's three and a half million teachers in the U.S. One out of every 10 working adults with a college degree is a teacher. Um, now, this is a model that made a certain degree of sense uh, 50 years ago and certainly 150 years ago. You know, we adopted this model when Horace Mann was building out the common school. He needed predictable, cheap labor that you could put in each of these one-room schoolhouses to have the kids read the right version of the Bible. 
And men were too expensive and too unpredictable. So teaching, which had been men's work for the first half century of the American Republic, they turned it into women's work. Um, And the great thing from Horace Mann's perspective was other doors were closed to women. They weren't going to leave for other work. Uh, They weren't go. You didn't have to pay them a fair wage. So they could pay teachers half or a third of what they had to pay a male counterpart. They could count on them not going away. That was a staffing model of American education from, say, the 1850s to the 1950s, 1960s. You know, it's not that trying to hire tons of people and plugging them into classrooms um, and expecting them to stay for 30 years in egg crate. Uh, and an eight grade school model is a bad idea. It's a fine idea if you can find three and a half talented people who want to do that job. The problem is we've got a model of the job that's just a really poor fit for the realities of the workforce, for the realities of right. how you hire educated, talented adults in 2022. And so rather than ask ourselves, rather than ask ourselves, how do we find enough people that we can squeeze into those classrooms? What I suggest in this piece is what I've talked about for years is how do we instead rethink the work of teaching like other professions, like architecture, like engineering, like medicine, so that it's better configured to take advantage of the people who can and will do the work. Interesting. Right, right. Um, We could spend the whole podcast talking about this teacher problem because it's so big. Just on a side note, Rick, you might find this interesting. Uh, Christa Ray School in Sacramento could not find a chemistry teacher this year can't be college prep if you don't have chemistry. So Catholic Virtual is zooming the teachers in from Fargo and New Orleans teaching chemistry to students in Sacramento. And, you know, and this is, you know, that's exactly right. And COVID, you know, brings all this to head. But, you know, 15 years ago, I remember speaking to like Chambers of Commerce in like West Texas or, you know, the Tennessee. And, you know, there's communities in kind of the hinterlands of Texas or in West Tennessee they can't find somebody who's able to teach um, AP calculus or world languages. Right. And so what do you do for this? And part of the question is, how do we rethink staffing? So it's not just what the bodies are. You know, another version of this, which yeah. every parent who's listening uh, is experienced and every educator, if you go into your local elementary school, doesn't matter, public or private, in my experience, and you ask the principal to say it, show me your best second grade uh, literacy instructor. And they, they can say, drop of a hat. You know, there's always one teacher who's really strong, building phonemic awareness, and they'll show you, and there's other teachers who aren't as strong at it. What's happening? The teacher who is strongest at teaching foundational literacy is working with 24 or 28 kids, doing literacy 90 minutes a day for those kids, and the other two or three or four classrooms of second raters are getting inferior instruction. The great te- the great literacy teachers. I think most elementary principals, in my experience, will just say, look, yeah, literacy is the foundation. Everything else is less important than learning to read by grade three. But they're doing 90 minutes of math. They're doing 60 minutes of art. They're watching kids eat lunch in some schools, not in others. Uh, They're helping kids get on and off the bus. Imagine if you went to, I don't know, a hospital and, you know, your kids, your kids on a table and the best pediatric neurosurgeon in the state uh, is about to work. And then she starts taking off the gloves and you say, "Uh, doc, my kid's on the table. And she says, I did my 90 minutes. It's my turn to go push the jello cart. Don't worry. Somebody else is going to come in and do their 90 minutes. 
It's just a crazy way to use talented professionals. It's not about yeah. it's not about grading teachers or rating and math scores. It's not about like who's more and less valuable as people. It's about how do you make sure that professionals who've got really important skills for kids are put in a position where they're able to maximize the impact on kids. Yeah, and I mean, Rob, we were talking about this, you and I, just the other day about what what could be the impact if we rethought the roles of teachers and focused them in on the bits that they got into the business for, right? The, the vocation, the mission for, and then, you know, like Rick was talking about, had them focus and do that more exclusively, would that enhance teacher satisfaction, help great teachers stay? We Yes, we need to address the, the pay scales. Um, what bugs me right now is that there's such a shortage of teachers that many principals are just scrambling to have bodies in a classroom and don't have the time to rethink how are we looking at this. But we have to do that. Yeah, and in fact, it's, I mean, I, I would argue it's a manufactured problem, um, right? We need three and a half million teachers. Um, we have natural attrition of about 300,000 teachers a year. All of America's selective colleges together, every college that accepts less than half its applicants, total, they don't graduate 300,000 people a year. So, you know, there, there is literally no good way to get enough kind of people coming in with strong academic preparation who are just to replace natural attrition. Um, look, a lot of what teachers do is not stuff that teachers need to be doing. Um, there's lots of time spent passing paper, filling out paperwork. Special ed teachers spend 40% of their time uh, filling out federally mandated or you know legally required forms rather than actually providing special education. Uh, we've got lots of teachers trying to do things like mentor kids, uh, that there might be other adults in the community who aren't teachers who would be better at, former military vets, um, members of the local church. Uh, but, but instead of saying to teachers, well, you're a teacher. Teaching means do all of these things every day and figure it out. One of the reasons that these principals are scrambling for teachers is they have made the job everything they can cram into a sack. If we instead say, what do we need teachers to do? How do we let teachers use their time well in a way that makes a difference? And then how do we supplement them with a variety of kinds of people? I think it makes the teaching job easier. It means you need fewer teachers. You know what? In medicine, there's only about 900,000 MDs uh, in the U.S., even though there's 7 million medical professionals. Everybody's not a doctor. Um, a doctor works side by side with RNs and EMTs and other folks who are easier to train and support. By making everybody just a teacher, we've made it harder to keep and support and, you know, really amplify the best ones. And we've asked other people to do more than it's reasonable to ask them to take on. Well, on that note, we're going to take a brief pause to hear from our sponsor, Catholic Virtual. Catholic Virtual is the trusted online education partner of Catholic schools worldwide. We develop customized online learning solutions to meet the needs of our partner schools and their students. Visit our website at www.catholicvirtual.com to learn more. Now back to the episode. Okay, we're back. Rick, um, let's, let's shift a little bit to um, something else you've written about recently, the failure of any large education reform initiative uh, or initiatives to have any impact on student learning from the Gates $575 million intensive partnerships for effective teaching to Common Core to the Obama administration's billion-dollar school improvement grant. That's a B with a billion. Why is this and how can we improve student outcomes? 
Uh, you know, I mean, I think, you know, all of these things, the $8 billion spent on school improvement grants, uh, the whole Common Core brouhaha, which and Tom Loveless in his wonderful book last year pointed out, you know, as it had no positive impact, arguably it's had some negative impacts. Um, you know, I mean, all of these things take the contours of the uh, school system that we've got as a given. And they say, look, let's just do it more of it. Let's do it harder. Let's ask these three and a half million overworked teachers uh, to let's just let's change the standards they're using. Let's change the assessment that we're overlying. The eight billion bucks on school improvement grants, let's to get a whole bunch of these people together to write 25 page uh, ridiculous cut and paste documents that we're going to call a strategic vision. And then they're going to do stuff different. You know, we're going to evaluate teachers, you know, principals, uh, you know, are going to spend extraordinary amounts of time going into classrooms, watching teachers, filling out documents, filing this stuff. And little or none of it's going to, what's the common thread? Again, I think it goes back to what we were just talking about. It doesn't change any of the assumptions about what kids do all day, about what adults do all day, about how we leverage the tools at our disposal. And so if you've got the same people doing the same basic things for, you know, the same periods of time with the same tools, I think you got to be, you know, you got to be drinking the Kool-Aid to imagine that's a recipe that's likely to lead uh, to, to significant change. And I think, you know, several decades of really well-intended school reform has been attempted and little of it has actually had much in the way of a real impact. It, it's just astonishing when you think about that. Is, has anything had an impact? Has any of these reforms or, you know, in your past 20, 30 years experience studying this, what what has made reforms or what has worked? Uh, sure. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I, and here's what's funny, right? Lots of things have worked uh, when they are done as kind of um, part of a DNA of an improvement strategy. So I think you can pull point to lots of charter schools or private schools um, that have devised a model that worked really well for a student population, even a large student population, 10,000 kids, 50,000 kids in some of these charter networks. Uh, you, you know, we, we talked about Crystal Ray a few minutes ago. Um, I think Crystal Ray's made an extraordinary difference in the lives of a bunch of kids. Um, but are these scalable are these things that can you can turn them on? There's a secret sauce with a bottle, and it, you would do it. No, if you try to do it everywhere, it's because it's it goes back to that humanity that we started with. That schools are human institutions. It's about the relationships between kids and adults. It's about whether the adults know what they're doing. It's about whether all the members of a school community, educators and parents, believe in what the school's trying to do and are mission aligned. When they are, lots of stuff winds up working really well. The teacher evaluation stuff, I think there's some promising cases where it worked in some of the pilot districts. Uh, do I believe that when you evaluate teachers thoughtfully and well, it's good? It's good for them? It's, of course I do. Problem is when you try to write these things into state laws and then bring in some highfalutin academic expert to create a whole bunch of checklists um, and to implement, you know, whether it's even somebody who I really like, like Charlotte Danielson and her, you know, her thoughtful approach. But by the time you try to industrialize it and staple it on every school and every teacher, it turns into one more bureaucratic, you know, rigmarole. And so I think it's not that nothing works. I think that it turns out that schools are so complicated and so human and so much of it matters on how you do the things you're doing that top down policy centric fixes from Washington or the states uh, hardly ever wind up getting you where you want to go. And, you know, Rick, that's my experience. And in, in, in my experience working with systems of Catholic schools, the so many times the best 
changes and movements forwards came from the grassroots up. And it was the job of the system, or in, in the case, my case, the diocese, to stand out of the way and support and to allow change to happen at the local level, because ultimately it was more effective. Uh, and there were plenty of times where we tried to put something into policy and it didn't work simply because we tried to take it at too high, too high level. So. Yeah. And I'm not a no policy guy. You know, my PhD is in political science. So, I, you know, I would, I would lose my card if I was like a nope. But, but I think it's like, what are you asking policy to do? Like, yeah. one of the problems is that we have half a century of regulations, that, over half a century, the federal government has developed around uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which became NCLB, which has become ESSA. And look, there's all these rules around supplement, not supplant, and maintenance of effort, and permissible use of federal funds. These things are all well-intended, but the sum total is that when you work with superintendents or principals, they wind up feeling enormously hemmed in, and they can't, they can't do the kinds of stuff we were just talking about staff. They can't do the kinds of purpose-driven th- rethinking around technology that, that, that would make sense. So policy has to enable these things. Um, policy is important because we're talking about public funding and certainly empowering parents to use public dollars to get their kids educated in the environment that's right for them. I'm somebody who believes that that environment might be a parochial school. It might be a learning pod. It might, uh, you know, it might be a traditional district school. I think parents need to be empowered with those funds. That's got to be policy-driven work. So I think that it's not that there's no room for policy, but it's that the reformers, quote unquote, and policymakers have tended to get the wrong end of the stick. They've wanted to use policy to fix schools instead of understanding that that's actually not what policy is particularly good at when it came when it comes to an enterprise like teaching and learning. Yeah. But Rick, you're um, you're hitting throughout this this discussion on something that Tom and I've talked a lot about our frustration with the pace of change in education. And, you know, I often talk about fond memories of going to Blockbuster on a Friday night with my kids and there's no more Blockbuster. And I jokingly talk about my travel agent. I was the last person, I think, to use my travel agent before she went under with COVID. But now I'm actually much more efficient with, you know, the Marriott app and the American app. And um, we could go on and on. I mean, every industry has had transformative change in their delivery and their, and how, but they still, we still watch movies and I still travel. What's it going to take for education to, to have this change? I mean, you're, you're explaining a lot of the issues that I think we've seen, but when is education going to have its Netflix moment? Well, and it's partly what, what kind of change you want to see. So like during COVID, obviously a lot of churches went to like drive by worship. I don't think, you know, I don't know. I, I, I you know, I'm Jewish, so I can't speak to, you know, but it seems to me that a bunch of the Catholics I know don't think it's as rewarding as an experience as sitting side by side in the pews. So, you know, it's an innovation and it's like quicker. You drive in, you drive out, you, but but um, it's an efficient way to pray. But I think a lot of people say, you know what, I I miss the humanity of the inefficient way. And so I think when that's, that's partly how we got to think about schooling, like, um, you know, Netflix is better than Blockbuster because I never really got a lot out of having to drag over to the mini mall and walk in and wait at checkout. But I think there's a lot that's innately important about being in classrooms with each with each other, um, about kids learning together, about teachers talking with them and putting a hand on the shoulder. So I think that creates some real boundary conditions when we think about educational innovation, um, which is appropriate. There are certain activities where the humanity is intrinsic. And even a really good Khan Academy module or a really good virtual mentor, um, I don't think captures pieces are important about the act of being together um, with our peers. Now, that's different for different kids. Some kids, uh, for whatever reason, health reasons or personality reasons, or prefer to be online. 
And we and we need to create those kinds of options so that families can make the choices that work best for that kid. But I think that's always going to be a minority of kids. Um, I think most kids, parents and the kids want that human interaction. So then the question is, how do we innovate within that? How do, what's the blockbuster moment look like there? Well, I think partly think about like whether it's like the whether it's ATMs or whether it's like self-checkout at grocery stores. Like when I go to a grocery, I love self-checkout, but I still always get lost in the aisles. And I really like it when I can say to somebody like, where do I find like the, the, the you know, the beer? Like, how, well, where is that? Um, and so I think, and, and, and so that's what I think about schools. For instance, Kurt Van Lane out at Arizona State has done this great research over time on like artificial intelligence tutoring systems. Um, one of the things that, you know, when you think about the role of tutoring, when you try to do tutoring at scale, it's really hard because tutors tend to turn over a lot. Um, it's hard to pay them enough to keep them working. When they tried to do this in Houston many years ago in the Apollo 20 initiative, just trying to get enough tutors, for, I think it was grades like five and eight, at 20 schools, they lost like half their people during the year. Tutors get sick. They call, you know, they, 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 they get hung over, whatever. AI, you don't have those problems. AI never calls in sick. It never misses a day. It never leaves for another job. So even though the best systems are maybe only 75 to 80% as effective as the best tutors, in-person tutors, um, that predictability and ubiquity can totally pay itself off. Now, that's helping a kid master particular, let's say, um, numerical skills, and math instruction. Uh, I don't want to try to figure out some AI to plug in to help a kid work on an art project in kindergarten. I don't want AI to help a fourth grader think about their essay on some moving short story that they've been reading together. So I think partly it's thinking about how do we unpack the stuff that educators do, the stuff of teaching and learning, so that, you know, light, re- flesh and blood teachers spend more time doing the things that really touch right. kids' souls, that really connect with them and change their lives, and that we're using the blockbuster moments, the Netflix moments, are really about leveraging technology in the things where there's better, more useful um, ways to deliver stuff to kids in ways that that's not dehumanizing education, but that is part of an ultimately more human education. Right, right, right. So, I mean, Rick, just thinking, you know, we you presumably hear about various models and various successes at the grassroots level. Can you give us examples of just uh, some schools or a network of systems or schools that you think are really knocking out the park and being bold in their innovation? That, um, that And I'm just thinking about this because maybe our listeners might want to check some of them out. So what's, yeah, what's on your so this is radar? where everybody finds me the least useful human being. And this is where I always go, well, I don't want to because the problem is, especially in COVID, but even in normal times, like at most, I occasionally poke in on something for a few hours of dog and pony show. Um, and so mostly what I'm doing is I'm repeating secondhand what somebody has told me looked really cool uh, or somebody's puff profile of this. And so then I feel like I am just part of the echo chamber of glory. Like for me, what does it really look like? The, the, the models that I think most, you know, most illuminating are like ABC mouse. I just find ABC mouse such a masterful way to think about like skill building. It's like fun uh, for anybody who doesn't know it. Uh, it's a private online tech uh, brand that like uh, tons of skill building in math and reading and, 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 and spelling and that. Uh, you've got avatars that can go in points and dress themselves and do this stuff. And it's just total gamification. 
And kids just get so invested in this and absorb so much knowledge and are so excited for the chance to kind of do this thing that I think we ought to say to ourselves, how come when ed tech doesn't look like this, why not? So for me, like right. that, that's the that right North Star is not, well, this school has a good online platform or, you know, there's some charter schools that have done a brisker job of pivoting and providing, you know, good asynchronous resources. But like for me, the real question is, where is stuff that kids are excited to do that, uh, you know, that in your judgment, they're learning real, meaningful, substantial content that's leapfrogging them into where they need to be? And even as they're learning, they're excited to kind of do it. And tech should be helping us do that. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's great, Rick. So final question, actually not the final, the, the final question before the final question. Um, when we were together at Northwestern, I talked about this earlier, leadership. Can you share your ideas in cage-busting leadership and how your thinking has evolved in the past nine years since its publication? Yeah, sure. Really, it hasn't. I've only had like a couple of ideas my whole career, and I just keep <laughs> writing different versions of them for, you know, 20-some years. Um, look, the, the premise of cage-busting leadership was real simple, that reformers back when I wrote the book, you know, say 2010, race to the top era, spent, again, lots of time talking about policy. We need policy that's going to enable people to form new schools, policy that lets leaders think differently about hiring, policy. And the insight uh, of cage-busting leadership that came after years of working with like states and district leaders was that leaders can already could already do tons of stuff that they said they couldn't do, but they either didn't know they could do it or they didn't understand how to do it, or they had a Title I coordinator, a special ed coordinator who said they couldn't do it. And they never asked the right questions to find out whether they could do it. And that the problem was, you know, that policy matters. Like I said, I believe, but that a lot of this was people were more focused on doing the things we already know how to do, which don't work all that well, which is why reform disappoints, rather than asking what would it take to solve this problem? And, you know, the fascinating thing, I think, in the private school world is that when I would give cage busting talks in, you know, in the private school world, you know, all of the same pathologies that you see in public education hold. Folks were also paying all their teachers in ways that weren't reflective of how much impact they were having on kids. They were also staffing schools in ways that looked as if they were bound by a union contract. Um, So for me, the the lesson of cage-busting leadership was there's lots that policymakers can and should do to make it possible for educational leaders to serve kids better. But there's also lots that educational leaders can already do that they're not doing. And they weren't doing it then. And, you know, one of the things that has struck me over the last 10 years through Common Core and the rush to social emotional learning and then the stuff around, you know, critical race theory and all that. And now the COVID response uh, is how little has fundamentally changed in that. I mean, when I see school districts spending COVID dollars on things that don't actually seem likely to make a big difference for kids, on nothing that actually helps rethink what do families want and need after two years of disruption and remote learning and closed schools and all the rest, and they're just pushing it into programs and adding staff, uh, it, it, you know, it, I think there's something fundamentally deep in the culture, the norms, the staff selection, the training of education, which works against our ability uh, to really reimagine how we'd serve kids. And, uh, you know, and I think so much of the work of reform should not be to therefore try to come up with the one leader proof solution, but to ask, how do we finally start to bend bend that curve? 
That's great stuff, Rick. So as we conclude here, we, we ask all of our guests one final question, and that is, who is your greatest teacher and why? Uh, Selma Ziff, uh, sixth grade, Pine Ridge Elementary, gifted, uh, gifted program. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, again, this was the only time in my entire life where I woke up and wanted to go to school during the day. Uh, you know, we were figuring out how to colonize foreign solar systems. We were doing Shakespeare, even during a, a work to rule by the by the Fairfax County teachers. Uh, she figured out how to delegate enough so that like parents and all could we could still put on Macbeth. Uh, we, we ran a casino with M&Ms for months during the year where we were learning probability. Uh, she believed in starting every day with, you know, this quiz of four complex math problems and would track it on. Like, it was everything. Every kid, whether you were introvert, extrovert, wow. whether you were a science kid or a literary kid, there was like there were so many handholds in that room for every child to show up each day and feel valued and feel excited. And, you know, and for me, I want every child to have that experience at least once, but I sure as heck would like most kids to have that not one year out of 13, but time and again. You know, what's most interesting about that answer, Rick, was how quickly, I mean, you didn't pause. Most of our people pause, they think, and yeah. you, know, this, you went boom, right? You knew exactly it. who the teacher was. Yeah, that's that, tremendous. That's, that's really interesting. Well, Rick, we really want to thank you know how busy you are and yeah, uh, would love you, that, that, uh, that new piece you wrote for National Review. Hope all of our listeners go read that. It's a great piece about education coming out of the pandemic. Good to see you again, Rick. It's been too many years. Hope it's not too many again. So thank you for your time and for our listeners. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, we ask that you like it, share it with your family and friends. And Tom, any final concluding thoughts? Nope. Thank you. A lot to think about uh, from what Rick talked about. I'm going to go back and read reread his article again, too. Hey, great. great to be with you guys. Fun conversation. Um, appreciate, appreciate the interest. No, it's great. Thank you all. And we look forward to seeing you on the next class. We hope you enjoyed this episode today. If you did, would greatly appreciate it if you would share this episode with your friends and family. If you get a moment to rate or review us, that too would be much appreciated. Have a great day.